Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Adam Shine Podcast. Ah, uh, yes, episode 89 of the Adam Shine podcast, and our featured guest this week, one of my favorites. I've wanted to get him on the podcast for a long time. You certainly know his work if you are a fan of television, as he created Parks and Recreation, he created The Good Place, he was a writer on The Office, among others, a huge sports fan with a great book out. Michael Schur is the featured guest this week on the Adam Shine podcast. So trust me, you're going to absolutely love it. Great conversation about those shows, about how he wanted Joe Morgan fired, about the Boston Red Sox, about Big Poppy, about the New England Patriots, about sports radio. So Michael Schur is the featured guest this week on the Adam Shine podcast. And, you know, I'm always in a good mood. Seriously, I'm always, you know, high on life, got to love sports. Man, I'm just miserable after the Buffalo Bills were going to the championship game. They were going to win the Super Bowl. Sean McDermott doesn't squib that kick. Crazy. I mean, after you saw Josh Allen throw his fourth touchdown pass to Gabe Davis, I I thought it was over. Shame on me. Shame, shame, shame. I was the best game I've ever seen. I, you know, I always say that's the best weekend in all of sports, best consecutive days in all of sports. Divisional round of the NFL postseason, and man, I am just miserable for Bills fans, for Josh Allen, for Theo Shine. I mean, it's just insane. And that was high level football. That was the best NFL game I've ever seen. A couple of freak quarterbacks. Josh Allen this postseason, nine touchdowns, zero interceptions, and he's going home. Shame. Just a shame. They were going to host on Championship Sunday. They were going to be the Super Bowl favorites. That makes me angry, and I am livid that Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens didn't get into the Baseball Hall of Fame. I know they use performance-enhancing drugs, but so did Big Poppy. There's a steroid taint there, too. That's why you have to let them all in. And Bonds should have been in on the first ballot. Same with Clemens. Barry Bonds, best ball player I've ever seen. Make the case, best ball player in the history of baseball. And he's the home run champ. You know how I know it? Hit the most home runs. I get it. Performance enhancing drugs. He was jealous of the attention for McGuire and Sosa. But look, Seelig's in. Joe Torre, Tony La Russa, take a look at their rosters. You know, guys like Pudge Rodriguez and Jeff Bagwell and Mike Piazza. There's an I don't know quotient. So it's not about steroids. It's about personality. And David Ortiz has a, a wonderful personality. I mean, please, what a joke. Speaking of jokes, the very smart and very funny Michael Schur is the featured guest on the Adam Shine podcast, and this is Next Level Genius. Ah. 
The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, everyone. This is Heisman Trophy winner and NFL quarterback Doug Flutie. I'm excited to tell you that my podcast, the Flutie Flakes Cast, is back for the entire football season. I may have played like 21 years of professional football in three different leagues, but I'm still just a big kid, and I absolutely love this game. Every week, we'll talk about the topics I care about and bring on super fun guests. So please subscribe today wherever you stream your podcast or listen on the SXM app. Include it with most subscriptions. Featured guest this week on the Adam Shine Podcast, one of my favorites. I am such a huge fan of the TV shows that he has created. He has an unbelievable book out. Michael Schur is nice enough to be the featured guest on the Adam Shine Podcast. Mike, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. It is so great to have you, and there's so much I want to get into with you because, you know, you created two of my all-time favorite shows in Parks and Recreation and The Good Place, the book, How to Be Perfect, the correct answer to every moral question, hilarious, insightful, absolutely amazing. Mike, how much of that stemmed from The Good Place? Really all of it. I mean, you know, I spent five years reading about philosophy and ethics and then discussing it with a team of writers who were smart and funny people and having professors come in and talk to us and help us understand what the hell any philosopher was ever talking about, which is not an easy thing to do. And then at the end of it, I was sort of like, you know, that was really fun and hard and challenging. And I, I kind of wanted to like, I thought of it as like conducting an exit interview for myself of like, here's everything I learned. I'm going to put it all in one place because I think that the ideas from these philosophers are fascinating and really helpful it's just that their books are so long and dull that nobody nobody wants to read them. <laughs> so maybe I thought like maybe if I can write a shorter, less dull summary that maybe people will get something out of it. So, yeah, it came directly out of writing the show. Yeah. And you could tell and you feel that in the book. And, you know, it, it's not a boring philosophy book. There's no question about that. And you can tell right from the beginning, right from the first words are, you know, should I punch my friend in the face? So what is the answer to that question of should I punch my friend in the face? The answer is no. And if you <laughs> if you answered no, you're on the, you're on your way to, to being an ethical person. I tried to formulate each chapter into like a simple question that we that you could actually get an answer to. That first chapter is about Aristotle and about because his whole thing was like, I'm going to try to become a good person and then I will do good things if I can become a good person. 
So I wanted to start with the simplest, most basic question of like, how would you, how to comport yourself on earth? So it's like, all right, well, how about this? Should I punch my friend in the face for no reason? And if, if we can't, if we can't answer that one, we're in trouble. That's sort of how I thought about it. Like we ought to, let's start with an easy one, get our feet under us, and then we'll march into some trickier territory. How would you define moral exhaustion? So I'm glad you brought this up. So, you know, philosophers have all these terms that people associate with them that made them famous. You know, Immanuel Kant has the categorical imperative and Aristotle has the golden mean. And so I was like, all right, my goal for this book is to coin a term that people will associate with me. And like, you know, 500 years from now in some alien university, the alien professor will be like, this term was first coined by Michael Shore in the year 2022. <laughs> so moral exhaustion is my way of trying to describe this thing that we all live with, I think, which is like every single day we're faced with all of these ethical quandaries from, you know, what food to eat and where to shop for a hat. And then also like, oh, you're a fan of, uh, of, you know, Aaron Rodgers. Here's Aaron Rodgers stance on vaccines. And, oh God, now I got to factor that in. I can't just watch a Packers game <laughs> for the team. It's true. So, and it can be really exhausting. Like I'm very, uh, I, I'm exhausted by it. I assume most people are that we're constantly being barraged with all of these questions of like, do you support this person? Do you like this person? Do you shop at this place? Do you listen to this music? So it can be really tiring. And what I talk about in the book is like, because it is so exhausting, we need to figure out better ways to examine behavior, deal with behavior. We need to give ourselves a break from time to time and not be overly concerned about it. I mean, on The Good Place, there was a character named Chidi who was a moral philosophy professor and he was so consumed by these questions of ethical behavior that he essentially never did anything. He just he drove everybody crazy because they would say, do you want to get a bite to eat? And then he would spend 92 minutes trying to think of like, what's the most ethical restaurant? And you can't live your life that way. So while I'm arguing that we should try to be better people, I'm also acknowledging as best I can that like it's really hard. The amount of information we have is overwhelming. And we ought to let ourselves off the hook from time to time from making ethical calculations. So let's get into The Good Place. And to let you know, I started watching it. I, I did not watch it in real time. I got to be honest with you. That was my pandemic show with my wife, which the okay. pandemic. So the my headspace was interesting. We can't leave the house, right? You know, mm -hmm. this is me talking. I, I need a new right. president. You know, we're in the beginning of this pandemic. So it was the right show at the right time for me, for my wife, my kids, my 13-year-old daughter is watching it now. My 11-year-old daughter has already watched it. So it, going through this as a family is pretty fascinating. And, man, I was just obsessed with it on so many levels. First of all, I'm fascinated by this. When did you come up with the ending? Because the ending of the show, to me, Mike, was perfect. You could have done a few different things. I cried. We all cried. It was <laughs> perfect. Thank you. Uh, I guess we should say, spoiler alert, in case anybody hasn't uh, watched the show and wants to, you can push pause or skip past this part. Um, the ending started to take shape around the end of the second season, I would say. We were... We were I, when I sold the show, I, it was such an odd idea. And I was worried that my bosses would be a little bit skeptical of whether it would work. And so you, normally when you sell a show, you just come up with the basic premise and you say, here's the kind of thing that might happen in the first season. 
I broke the entire first season, like all the way to the end, all the way to the big twist that happens at the end of the first season. So when I pitched it, I I told them like, here's everything that's going to happen. And I think that really helped them see the show and understand what I was going for. But the other effect it had is we were always like a whole year ahead because as we were working on the first season, we were coming up with ideas for the second season. So we we were really operating from a place of like, we know what the whole season is going to be before we start shooting it, which isn't a typical thing in network TV. So by the end of the second season, we were already thinking about the third season and that had put us in a sort of end game where we were thinking like, okay, I think it's going to be four years. And if we're doing this here, then this would happen here. And by the time we were in the break between two and three, I pretty much knew that the fourth season would be the end. And I started thinking about how it should really go. And one of the themes in the show, and one of the themes in the in the a lot of the stuff I've done is that anything that happens for too long becomes hell. <laughs> like anything, <laughs> like the, the, the greatest, your greatest dream of what heaven could be or what the afterlife could be or or like a vacation that you have that's amazing. You go to Hawaii and you're in a five-star resort. If you stayed in that five-star resort in Hawaii for 17 years, the buffet would cease to be that good <laughs> and the beaches would start to look boring and the weather would be annoying. Like there's no version of perfection that can be eternal. And so once we had that revelation, it became clear that the way the show had to end was that the people who achieved eternity in paradise had to leave paradise like it just they had to because there's no such thing as as eternal perfection you everything gets boring after a while so that's when we started to have that idea and then over the course of really two years we really carefully crafted the story to get us to a place where this the real story would be that we're, we're we lived in this perfection for a while and then the only thing that gives it meaning is that it ends, which I think is a good metaphor for life, really. Like the, the thing that gives our lives meaning or that we know they're going to end someday and we're trying to make the most of it while we're here. Yeah, it was perfect. And I, I figured you had to really address the end at some point. And you're right. I mean, that's not how normally you would do it in terms of television. All right. How's this for the second question on The Good Place? Because it's kind of deep and probing. Blake Bortles and the Jacksonville Jaguars. <laughs> now, I know what kind of sports fan you are, and that, that's always, to me, part of the beauty in, in following you. But oh, And I, I love knocking Blake Bortles. I mean, from the minute he was drafted, it didn't make any sense. Take Khalil Mack. How did you work Blake Bortles and the Jags so brilliantly into the show? So Manny Jacinto's character, Jason Mendoza, was a very proud native of Jacksonville, Florida, and we did a flashback in the first season where it was telling the story of, uh, of one of the stories of his kind of insane life in Jacksonville. And at one point it, the story ended with him giving this very philosophical monologue about life and what he wanted out of life. And then he threw a Molotov cocktail at a speedboat and Joe Mandy, who was a long time, a writer I've worked with for a long time was on the set. And he said, Hey, it would be funny if as he threw it, he yelled Bortles the way that some people, when they shoot, they yell Kobe or whatever. Yep. So he he had him do it, and we thought it was so funny, and it was this little tiny thing. If you heard it, you heard it. If you missed it, didn't hurt anything. And then we just kind of kept working Blake Bortles into the show <laughs> like time after time after time, and it got funnier and funnier to us. And eventually, we started hearing, like when, so Bortles goes on that playoff run. The yep. Jags go on that playoff run, and they're one half of, of one game away from beating the Patriots and making the Super Bowl. And we're thinking to ourselves, what are we going to do? We've been dunking on this guy for three years. If this guy wins a Super Bowl, like how are we going to handle that? We have to do something. 
Now, fortunately, I'm a Patriots fan. They didn't win that game. We didn't have to deal with it. But what was funny about that run is that there were a ton of people on Twitter who were like, I had no idea Blake Bortles was a real guy. Like, I thought they the show made him up. Like, wow. it's such a silly name. They thought, like, there were all these people saying, like, today I learned that Blake Bortles is a real person. And that really delighted <laughs> me that we had, we had brought Blake Bortles some uh, national acclaim. Ah, just hilarious. Even when Janet was trying to explain, you know, and the Jaguars are actually not that bad right about now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, well, that, it, was, it was, that was the funniest part. We did this thing where, like, they had gone down to earth sort of illegally and messed with stuff. And there's a moment where the judge, Maya Rudolph, is is explaining, like, that, you know, that things are different because they screwed with the, you know, the space-time continuum. And one of the ways that the world was different was that Blake Bortles had had a really good year and almost made the Super Bowl. <laughs> so ridiculous. <laughs> it, it was so perfect. And, you know, I have to tell you, Parks and Rec, to me, it, it's it's on my Mount Rushmore. Like that, oh, thank just, you. It's a brilliant comedy. The likability of all the characters, that doesn't always happen in a show. It, did you feel that when writing it, the actors, I mean, you know, individually, collectively, they, I mean, you had a collection of stars, great role players like a sports team. Did, mm -hmm. did you feel that the likability in the writing and the execution of Parks and Recreation? Yeah, I definitely did. I mean, it started with Polar because Amy Polar is one of the most winning human beings i've ever met i mean she just is a she's like a beam of pure light that radiates happiness and joy and and warmth and so with her at the center of the show it was already going to be like that but then you know nick offerman was a guy who had auditioned for a, an episode of the office that i had written years earlier we wanted to cast him and he wasn't available and i wrote his name on a post-it note and just stuck it to my computer and was like, wow. someday something, I'll find that guy. And then when we were casting the show, I was like, oh yeah, that guy, that guy's hilarious. And so, and then Chris Pratt, my wife worked for the OC. My wife is a writer as well. So she worked on the OC and Chris Pratt was on the OC in the fourth season. And when we were casting the show, she was like, you know who you should go after for this part is, is Chris Pratt. He's so funny. And it just so happened that he was available and we, he auditioned and we cast him. And so a lot of very fortunate stars lined up for us in the casting of that show and the woman who cast her name Allison Jones is like a legend of comedy casting she cast Curb and Arrested Development and The Office and Brooklyn Nine-Nine and all these shows she's incredibly good at what she does and the the it was a little bit of luck and a little bit of alchemy that once they all got together it was like everyone just made everybody else better the, we it's funny we used a basketball analogy a lot which was we had in Amy Poehler, like the world's best point guard. We had Chris yeah. Paul on the yeah. team who can score when, when she needs to, but also is a great distributor of the ball. She was always setting up other people to be funny. And when you have a, a, a when the star of your show is a great point guard, then the team plays better instead of it being like a, a you know, a power forward who wants to put up 30, you know, 17 foot jumpers every night and just get his points. I love the sports analogy and that poured through. I mean, it's, it was brilliant. And I mentioned stars, you know, role players. Great. Donna. Great. Jerry. Great. Mm -hmm. So Ben Schwartz's character. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I love that you laugh even as I mention it. I mean, every time that Jean Ralphio Samperstein is on camera, it's mm -hmm. laugh out loud funny. What made him such a great character? And how the hell did you come up with that name? Uh, great question. I did not come up with the name. I wish I had. Um, that was Harris Whittles, the late Harris Whittles, who passed away, sadly, uh, a number of years ago. But 
he came up with the name Jean Ralphio hyphenated, <laughs> um, which is just an amazing name. It's just perfect for that guy. One of the things I loved most about that show, and this again only happens when you have someone like Amy Poehler at the center of it, is we were constantly world building. We would constantly bring in, you know, Mo Collins as the local TV, uh, you know, cable access host, and Ben Schwartz as this weird degenerate lunatic who lives <laughs> awesome. in a, in a, on the fringes of the town. Like we had, and we would just get the funniest people we could find. We would get Jason Manzukas and Catherine Hahn and and Henry Winkler and whoever we could find and bring them in and just develop characters for them and then just set them loose. Like we would just let them do their thing. So, you know, he came on, I met with him, his agent called me and said like, you should meet this guy. He's really funny. And I met him and he's just, he's a, he's a lunatic and in the best possible way. And then we had this episode that was like, Oh, Ron Swanson needs a new assistant. So this guy <laughs> would be perfect for that role. Cause Ron would hate him so much. So we brought him in. He was hilarious in his scenes. He was like, and, and we were like, oh yeah, well, that guy's coming back. And we just kept writing him in his episode after episode. And by the end, he had been in, you know, a dozen or 15 episodes of the show where he would pop up, be hilarious, and then disappear again. And it was always like a fun treat when he was in an episode because we're like, oh yeah, that guy, you know, it's, it's just, that's one of the great things about working on a show that has a big cast and a huge deep bench the way that we did that, that's on the air for that long is you get these it's like the simpsons like you get to yeah. go to these different people at these key moments and say like oh a little pop of ben schwartz here will be so perfect you know i mean aubrey was great and rob mm -hmm. lowe and you know rashida jones and, and aziz i mean it was just an incredible cast to go with obviously adam scott and and amy's grade how did you know because i could have watched 15 more seasons on a show <laughs> like that how do you know when to say when it's hard. You know, we had a, Amy and I were always in conversation about how we felt about the about the mission of the show. You know, the part of the fun of that show was we moved pretty quickly through plot like we, we weren't interested in being a show that was like repeating the same stories over and over again. So Leslie, Nope, you know, advanced pretty steadily through the ranks. She started out as a pretty low level person in the parks department. And by the end, she's working in a pretty significant job at the national park service and the federal government. So we really wanted the show to feel like she was always moving forward. And when you do that, it's great because the show has a lot of momentum and things change and there's new dilemmas and new problems that crop up. But then you also chew up a lot of story and you end up in a place where you're like, well, now, you know, there's nowhere left to go. We'd be repeating ourselves. So heading into that last year, I talked to her a lot and I was like, I kind of feel like maybe this is the last one. And she was like, I kind of think so too. And so we just went by our guts. I mean, part of, part of it too, was that that show is making a very specific set of points about government at a very specific moment in time. It was right, right. the show was written in the, during the financial crisis in 2007, Obama was running and it was clear that government was going to be very present in people's lives in a way it hadn't been before. And we were, taking the position that like government could do good for people if the right people are in the right offices, you know, and then, so we made that point, we explored it and we got to the point where we felt like we had made our point and then we decided to leave. That was sort of the, the only real, the only real ethos there was just our guts. Do we feel like we have said what we need to say? And you said it brilliantly. I, I love the show. Again, Mount Rushmore show for me. Now, obviously you were writer on, on the office, I've always wondered this, and I loved The Office. Could The Office have aired now? 
You mean because Michael Scott is so politically incorrect in his? I mean, <laughs> I laugh every at everything he says. Do you think it could have aired on on television now? I do. Um, you know, in this new world that we're in, where we're being much more attentive to and critical of bad behavior and racism and sexism and all of these ways that are, by the way, good that we're doing that, right? right? Like, this is right. a good thing that we're that we care now. Like, uh, let's not pretend that this is a bad world we live in. Like th- that question has come up a lot of like Michael Scott was uh, was said a lot of inappropriate things and did a lot of inappropriate things. My thing is you have to look at the context in which the show is presenting that behavior. The show was never of the position that what he was doing was good. The, right. the point right, of, of the show was that he was a buffoon who had these enormous blind spots and didn't understand that the things he was saying and doing were offensive and cruel and heartless. He he thought he was being a great boss and was being very funny. And then the camera, he would say those things. The camera would go to Jim or or uh, Pam or whoever. And the look on their faces would be like, oh, my God, this is how can he be saying this? So, yes, I think the show could exist today. And part of that um, part of the proof is that it's as popular today as it was maybe more so than it was then. And so. When we're examining these behaviors of TV characters or politicians or whoever, you always have to say, like, okay, well, what's the context in which what they're saying? What is what's what's around what they're saying? Like, what is how are they saying it? How is it being received? And on a TV show where the person making those comments is loudly ridiculed and everyone is rolling their eyes and clenching their fists and saying, he's such a ding dong. How does he how does he think that this is a smart thing to say? Then, yeah, because the show's position was that's not the right way to behave. Like if the show had said this is what we think the good behavior is, then no, of course not. But that would have been crazy to do even back when the show was on the air. What was it like playing Dwight Schrute's cousin Mose? I mean, (laughs) did you ever read one of the scripts and, and just be like? They're asking me to do this. I mean, oh, all it was the time. wild, right? Of course. Yeah, it was. No, it was. A, it was a nightmare. It was a waking nightmare. I mean, what happened was they asked. They told me to do it once, and it was sort of a light hazing. Right? You have to grow a neck beard, and you have to wear wool clothes, and you have to look like a buffoon. Ha ha ha! But the writers so enjoyed torturing me, and really, like, wrote, started writing Moe's into any. Anytime there was any kind of story about Dwight and his farm, it would be like, well, Moe's has to be in there. And they would force me to glue on a neck beard and wear those wool clothes. And then the game became what humiliating thing can we get him to do? Like I, at one point I was shirtless bouncing on a trampoline. <laughs> I, I was on a, that, yeah. I was on a seesaw. I was in an outhouse with my pants around my ankles with the wind blowing the door open. It was, <laughs> it became a fun way for my very close friends and dear friends to ritualistically humiliate me on television. Uh, so yes, I, it's not my favorite thing I've ever done, but I also appreciated the lengths that they went to to humiliate me. Now we could go through all the different examples of brilliant television that you've created or different things that you've done. Fire Joe Morgan. Let's <laughs> let's hit fire because I remember Fire Joe Morgan. And as someone who used to yell at the TV when Joe Morgan was on TV, it's like this is great. Fire Joe. Who is Ken Tremendous? I mean, this, this should we be putting him on one of our shows? I mean, who who is this guy? Did you have any idea Fire Joe Morgan was going to take off like it did? 
No. Um, for those of you who don't know, this was a blog that my friends and I wrote for years ago under pseudonyms. Mine was Ken Tremendous. That's still my Twitter handle. Uh, and it was literally, it was the simplest possible like blogger account where we just took what we saw as dumb sports writing or announcing, reprinted it, and then just made jokes and made fun of it. And it was literally a thing that my friend Dave and my other friend Alan Yang and I did and then invited some other people to do as a as a way to like collect all of our observations about bad sports writing, bad announcing in one place. My friend Dave literally was like, you know, we we call each other and send each other so many emails about some dumb thing that Tim McCarver said in some broadcast. We should just start a blog and just keep track of them. <laughs> so we did. And we never thought a single person would read it. It was really just for us. And then Will Leach was running Deadspin at the time, and he found us. I don't know how. And he started linking to us from Deadspin, like at the height of Deadspin's popularity. Yeah, and yeah. so suddenly what had been 12 people reading this blog became 5,000 and then 10,000 and then 20,000. And it was it was really it was totally shocking to us. We never in a million years thought that anyone would care about this stuff except us. And it is truly wild. Like when you bring it up now, all these years later, I can't believe anybody read it. It was so silly. And so uh, just like just for our own amusement and that it's really wild that anyone even knows what it is. And you reference your big Patriots fan, big Red Sox fan. I always mm -hmm. enjoy your sports takes on Twitter. I love that you still use at Ken Tremendous, which is <laughs> which is awesome. So Big Poppy gets into the to the Hall of Fame. And yes, full disclosure, I am a diehard Yankee fan. And I, I do think that he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. You know, I did read the New York Times and, and Michael Schmidt about the failed drug test. And by the way, I think they all should be in. That's my my stance. Bonds, gotcha. Clemens, Poppy. So what was your reaction to the news of the day as we taped this that your guy, David Ortiz, is in the Baseball Hall of Fame? I I was as happy for him as I think I would be if my own child someday made the Baseball Hall of Fame. Like I had an overwhelming sense of happiness because you know, you're a Yankee fan, so you can't totally understand this. But as a Red Sox fan, the story of the Red Sox for almost 90 years was that in the biggest moments, the team fails. That was the story. That was the thing that defined the franchise. And then Ortiz comes along. 2003 happens. The Aaron Boone home run happens. But we've gotten closer than we've ever gotten before. But yet again, in the biggest moment, the team fails. And you start to think to yourself, will this ever happen? I remember lying on the floor of my friend Dave of Fire Joe Morgan. I was lying on his floor in New York. And I was saying, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. We're never going to beat the Yankees. And then the very next year, down 3-0 in the ALCS, they come back and win. They beat the Cardinals. They sweep the Cardinals in the World Series. Almost entirely due to the heroics of one man. It's David Ortiz. He, in the biggest moments for 15, 16, 17 years, he was the guy who single-handedly turned out around an entire franchise and its history in the way that its fans think of the franchise, in the way that the city relates to the franchise. It's just the, he is the on the Mount Rushmore of Boston sports, and that's not an easy Mount Rushmore to crack. It's basically Ortiz, Larry Bird, Bobby Orr, and Ted Williams. Like that's, those are the guys who who you would say, like, these people matter the most to the city. So I I'm thrilled for him. I'm so happy. Um, and I I just I, I kind of want to go to the ceremony. <laughs> I've never been to one of those ceremonies. <laughs> kind of want to go now. Like, this is the guy for me who changed uh, everything that that I feel about sports, really.
your smile, your word choice is is pretty amazing there, Mike. That's that's awesome. That's that's great fandom. How about the Patriots and that dynasty, which to me, I will argue, considering salary cap, considering the league setup parity, you're supposed to go eight and eight, Brady, Belichick. I have always viewed it as the greatest dynasty in the history of sports. I think you can certainly make that argument. I mean, it's a lot harder to win Super Bowls between 2001 and the present than it was to win the World Series in the 50s when the Yankees won every year. Um, you know, there were many fewer teams. There was no free agency. There was no salary cap, blah, 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 blah. Football is generally, like you say, designed for parity. It's designed to have a different Super Bowl champion every year. So, yeah, I think you can absolutely make that claim i mean six super bowl wins between 2001 and 2018 is an absurd number brady's postseason stats will never be approached much less beaten he'll have the record for wins completions yardage touchdowns everything in the postseason forever like no one will ever come close look at aaron Rodgers. aaron Rodgers is like 11 and 10 in the uh, may, aaron Rodgers may be a better pure quarterback than yeah. anyone else who's ever played. Yeah. He's 11 and 10 in the postseason. Brady's 35 and 12 or something. I mean, it's just, he's so far beyond what everyone else did. And not only were they making the postseason every year, they were getting a bye every year. Brady's playoff, like, you know, he didn't play a wild card game until two point. years ago. He didn't play a game on the road until this year, I think, a wild card game on the road. Like, or I don't, can't remember what the details are, but I think you can make that argument. I think it's a fairly safe argument that that dynasty even despite all of the problems in Spygate and this and that or whatever, like you can't take away from them that they just, they were, they were so dominant for so long. And now it looks like Buffalo will be that for the next 20 years. We'll see. Uh, final question for you. One of my favorite things in addition to the shows that you have done, the, the article you wrote on Levitard and his crew. And mm. I, I seriously, because I'm one of those, I'm a nuts and bolts Sports guy, take guy. That's what I do on television and radio, right? Mm-hmm. You know, see it, read it, react to it. Sports takes. That's I grew up on Mike and the Mad Dog. That's how I, I was raised. Lebertard sure. is the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of those on the outside. At first, I didn't get the show. I mean, I, I really, <laughs> it was like a foreign language to me, right? Sure. You gave a great breakdown on the likability, the chemistry, the camaraderie. What makes that show so special? It's a lot of things. I mean, they were doing that show in the dark locally in Miami for a long time. And I think that, you know, as the saying goes, Moss grows best in the dark. Like, I think what they no one was around telling them what to do you know, directing them, changing them. They were allowed to just develop these relationships with each other and these personalities on the air and that chemistry that comes, I mean, four hours a day, every day, week after week after week, like they just developed this kind of thing that was interesting and unique. And then when they go national on ESPN, they, they have two things that they do that nobody else does. One is when a very serious topic emerges like race for example in sports which is obviously you know in the post Kaepernick era has been the dominant question of like how we talk about sports has been through a racial lens they're all Cuban or Colombian or not all of them but many of them or African-American and so suddenly in a very white network there's a place where there are people who actually are living the lives of the people who are being 
discriminated against or treated badly or whatever, who can they can go to for actual insight? That's a huge thing that, that they had over every essentially every other show at ESPN at the time. But the other thing that they have is they're ridiculous. They're absurd and they're comedic and they make fun of themselves and they're very like navel gazing and they like to mock each other. So they never tilt over into that too serious to listen to and be entertained by. They they walk this crazy line over there between absurdism and silliness and, and absolutely none of this matters and we're just goofing around. And then also they can tackle really serious issues. And it's just this very odd dichotomy that has led them to carve out this very special place in the landscape. The book is outstanding. Make sure you get it. How to be perfect. The correct answer to every moral question. Michael, this was an absolute treat. It's been wonderful following your career. Big fan of your work. Tell your wife I love the OC, by the way. I, I still, hey, I will. Adam and Summer, you know, I always thought they were going to get together, but that's, that's a whole nother story. Peter Gallagher was great. I love that show as well. So congratulations on everything and really appreciate the time. Thank you, buddy. This was a pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Hey, everyone. It's Howard Bender from the Andy Up podcast. Every weekday, Adam Ronis and I serve you up the picks, plays, and fantasy information needed to win your bets. You know, this isn't just your average sports betting show, though, for one very good reason. We won't tell you what to do unless we've already done it ourselves. That's right. We put our money where our mouths are, so we're just as invested in each bet as you are. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts, or listen on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Adam Shine, not telling you to wager on football, but here we go. So Bob Stew is 7-3, and three, picking games against the spread in the postseason. I am also 7-3 and three. on the season. Hope you guys have been paying attention. We're both on fire. I'm 153-126-3. Bobby Stew, 148-131-3. Bob, I got to tell you, I can't believe the spread is seven on Kansas City and Cincinnati. We just saw this game in week 17, albeit in Cincinnati. I know that the moment is not too big for Joe Burrow. Seven-point spread? I can't circle Cincinnati with the points getting seven fast enough. I'm actually stunned, Adam. I'm on the complete opposite side of you. I don't think the game's going to be close. And hear me out. Wow. I know, I know we just saw this game, and you just said it. The game was in Cincinnati. You just mentioned it. And since that game, a lot has happened, Adam. The Bengals' offense has really sputtered since that game. They have not been great in the red zone. Joe Burrow has been sacked. He's been sacked 10 times since we started talking on this podcast at this point. And the fact is, the Bengals' defense has been good. They haven't been that good. And also, they have to face the Chiefs coming up. If you remember that game too, Adam, the Chiefs' offense was insane in the first half. They put point after point after point on the board. I think they're going to do the same thing in this game, especially at home. I really think it's going to be a blowout. I don't even think it's going to be close. I'm loving the Chiefs in this game. Wow. Yeah, we're totally on opposite sides of the fence. I I give Cincinnati a chance to win. I would be stunned if this is lopsided. I think it's going to be eerily similar to what we saw in the first matchup, which was just a few short weeks ago. Look, Burrow got sacked nine times against Tennessee. Didn't even matter. He's that special. Crowd noise. Listen, he says it's no different than an SEC game. Doesn't matter if that's fact or fiction. It's like Costanza said. It's not a lie if 
you believe it. Chase's special, Higgins, Mixon, uh, I think you are absolutely disrespecting the <laughs> Cincinnati Bengals. The number to me is fascinating on the Rams and the 49ers. Three points. It was three and a half when it first came out. You know I picked L.A. to go to the Super Bowl before the season. You know I'm staying with it. I know what San Francisco, what Kyle Shanahan does to Sean McVay. Five straight times he's beat Sean McVay. But I love L.A. and I think that the Rams, with Stafford Garoppolo being the obvious big difference, I think the Rams will be able to take care of business. I got to tell you, something has been really bothering me lately, Adam. The Jimmy Garoppolo truthers. Let me tell you something about Jimmy Garoppolo. I cannot hear any more about how this guy is a winner, and all he does is win. He was terrible in that Packers game. He contributed to six points on offense. He was so terrible. He made two throws all game. You know what Jimmy Garoppolo is, Adam? He's a slightly better version of Mark Sanchez. I think the Rams' defense is going to destroy San Francisco in this one. Look, Trent Williams has an injury. That's a disaster for San Francisco. Yeah, look what happened to Brady and the Bucs. I know. I know. Trent Williams didn't play in Week 18 either. I know that. But Von Miller and Aaron Donald, they looked unbelievable last game. They're going to look unbelievable in this game. They look great against San Francisco, too. It was more a matter of the Rams choking that game away after halftime. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't see them going conservative. And the real key in this one to me, Adam, Matt Stafford looks significantly healthier that's right. since that game Week 18. That's he looks right. like a different quarterback. He's been perfect. The Niners needed a miracle to beat the Packers. They're not getting a miracle against the Rams again. I love the Rams in this one too, Adam. I'm with you on this. How many times uh, in the Green Bay and San Francisco game did you scream, oh, no, Jimmy, Jesus, oh, yeah. Jimmy. I mean, he should have oh, legally boy. changed his name to Jesus, Jimmy. I mean, <laughs> it, it was wild. I'm, I'm with you, I, I think. Look, Kyle Shanahan has tried to kill Jimmy Garoppolo off on numerous occasions. He wanted Stafford. He traded up for Trey Lance. So I think the Jimmy G mystique, and that comes to an end. By the way, speaking of Stafford, thanks last week on the podcast for convincing me not to start Matthew Stafford in <laughs> Daily Fantasy, a Aww. league that I invited you in. My guy Ken invited you in, and then you sabotaged me. Yep. I, I had uh, Stafford in my lineup. I had Odell in my lineup. You know, everyone who listens to the podcast knows I've been obsessed in reality and fantasy with Gabe Davis for the last yeah. two years. The, I pulled him Saturday afternoon for Dawson Knox. I pulled him for Dawson Knox two hours before the lineups are locked. I mean, you can't make that up if you tried. So here's what I did, Bob. I set my lineup right now. Can't talk me out of it unless you do. <laughs> Stafford, Mitchell, Mixon, Odell, Chase, Higgins, Kelsey, Higby playing two tight ends, and the Rams defense. Yeah, I'm not going to talk you out of any of those decisions, Adam, because when I did last week, I wrecked your lineup. But, you know, I I love this league. It's so funny. Not a single person played Gabe Davis last week. Yeah. Like he was the high, one of the highest scoring ever in the playoffs for fantasy, for daily fantasy. He was unbelievable. Over 50 points would have swung every matchup. He would have won every, pretty much anyone the matchup if they played him. I didn't play him either. I played Stephon Diggs. What an idiot I am. Three catches, seven yards. You know, I had Josh Allen as my fantasy quarterback. Adam, I'm in fourth place. I'm feeling good. I was even in the money until Tyree Kill and Pat Mahomes. 
Sean McDermott ruined my daily fantasy, Adam. 13 seconds for me to go from 4th to 7th place. I'm living at the coin toss. It's time to change the OT rules, Adam. My fantasy quarterback deserves to touch the ball in overtime. I'm sticking to that motto. That is ridiculous. I'm still mad about it. I'm still mad about finishing 7th. I'm bouncing back, though. I'm top 5. I'm coming for everybody, Adam. I'm going to have another good week coming up. Listen, you know where I stand. I'm not changing the overtime rules. I'm not doing it. I I live for Josh Allen, but three phases to football, offense, defense, special teams. There's coaching. How you don't squib? Shame on me. I thought it was over with 13 seconds. The clock's going to be your friend. Terrible job. Just an awful job by Sean McDermott. Just terrible on, on every single level. That, to me, for Bill's Mafia, it's... It's pain. It's number two on the list of pain. Right after wide right, it's worse than Super Bowl two, three, and four. It's worse than what happened when you take a look at everything with the Music City Miracle. That was a complete and utter disaster. They had the best team, a star quarterback. And if you're a fan of the Buffalo Bills, you will never, ever, ever, ever get over that. Thank you for listening to another incredible episode of the Adam Shine Podcast. Michael, sure, what a treat. Thanks to our listeners on SiriusXM, our listeners on Pandora. Thanks to our listeners on Apple Podcasts and with Stitcher. We record the Adam Shine Podcast all year round, so please hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. You can always catch me every weekday on my SiriusXM radio show, Channel on Sports, which airs from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern on SiriusXM, Mad Dog Sports Radio, Channel 82. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. The Adam Shine Podcast is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer of the Adam Shine Podcast, the great Bob Stu. The associate producers, Chris Tyler and Andrew Emmer. Sound designed by my guy, Robert Moore. And special thanks to SiriusXM Senior, Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, the iconic Steve Cohen. SiriusXM Podcasts. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.